HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. HRN is now on Kitsch, the first live streaming community for the food obsessed. Go to K-I-T-T-C-H dot com and find HRN in the channel's listing. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with me, your host, Zara Changora, and me, your mom, Bobby Comforto. Oh, Bobby, what a sassy <laughs> introduction. How adorable. How cute are you? How are you, Zaz? I'm well, actually. It's a gorgeous day here in New York City. The sun is shining and the birds are chirping. Um, and we just had an amazing talk with Diane Zena, our guest today. What a beautiful, like, deep, incredible conversation. She was just a pleasure. Absolutely. And she actually even offered tools for yeah. um, folks to think about the, you know, she's a writer. And so what she wrote about was really, what she talked about was really writing through grief and writing for grief. And it was beautiful. Yeah, really beautiful. And I mean, I think anyone can really take a lot out of the conversation we had with Diane. Um, you don't have to be a writer. However, if you are a writer or you know a writer, um, I would, it would, I, recommend it even more because there was so much about writing and then and we talk about writing about grief but really it could be writing about any kind of you know really vulnerable thing which essentially writing in any case in any form taps into some kind of vulnerability um at one point or another yeah and she has a wonderful book which she'll talk about which i i want to go out and get yeah can't wait um so, folks, another thing we have to mention on the show today, and this is with a, a bit of a heavy heart. Don't worry, the show's not ending. It's just we're going on a break. Now, I realize that this year has been sporadic, and neither of us wants a, the show to be like that because as a podcast listener myself, and Bobby, you're a, an avid podcast listener, there is such an importance in the podcast that you love feeling like a dependable thing that you get every week. Um, as we mentioned, I think a couple episodes ago, you know, between work and the challenges of booking guests, which actually is frankly very hard. Um, I think it's always hard to book guests on podcasts and it's especially hard when you're working and then it adds another layer when we're asking the guests to talk about something that's so extremely, you know, vulnerable. And, uh, so it's been, that's been challenging. We're taking a break this time, however, for a bit of a more happy, personally happy reason. Mm -hmm. Um, 
taking a much needed actual physical break. We're going out of the country. Um, we're going to be in, have the great fortune and privilege of going to Italy. Bobby's going to France. We're going to spend some time in Italy together. Uh, we feel really very, very lucky to be able to do that um, and are filled with gratitude for that opportunity. Truly, it is such a remarkable, um, like, just real privilege. So we are really feeling lucky and happy and looking forward to it. However, that means for you folks that we are not going to be doing any podcasts for the month of May, but we will return in June with some wonderful guests and some good conversations. And hopefully, you know, having some time off gives you stuff to kind of think about and reassess. Um, you know, look at things as, as Bobby, uh, your husband and my stepdad, Rob has said in the new year, look at things with fresh eyes. Yeah. Which is cute. Yeah. Which is part um, of why we're going to Europe in the first place. <laughs> right. <laughs> to fresh have eyes. a moment to be able to look at everything with fresh eyes, all the antiquity with fresh eyes. Um, I also want to remind everybody if, if you know anybody that's interested who, who might, you know, like to be a guest, I mean, I think you can see it's a, it's a warm environment. We're not grilling anybody. You know, it's just a yeah. wonderful time. And if there's any thoughts that you have of somebody you know or think that might be interested, um, please let us know. Or even if they're not interested, just <laughs> secretly tape them while you're having an intimate conversation. And we'll air that. Just kidding. Don't do that. But yes, no, thank you, Bobby, for mentioning that. Um, we're definitely getting a lineup together of some really wonderful guests to have for the summer and... Um, some conversations that we have just between ourselves, some things we're going to want to talk about. Um, so yeah, we love you. We want to make this an interactive community and it is, and keep sending us your listener letters and, uh, recipes. Oh, as we're going to kind of talk about in the episode, Diane mentions a kind of way about writing, creative writing, um, and opening up through recipe using a recipe as like kind of, and I, I'm doing air quotes as the, uh, as the foundation of the story. So yeah, that would be great too. And please, we're going to link in the show notes how to find Diane online and take some of her amazing creative writing classes. And so without any further ado, we give you our conversation with the wonderful and wise Diane Zina. Enjoy. So we are joined today by a lovely, wonderful, warm guest, Diane Zina. Diane, hello. How are you? You are joining us from Virginia, yeah? I sure am. Hello. I'm so glad to be here. It's, we are so, so, so happy to have you. Um, so Diane, you are a teacher of creative writing and an author of a beautiful book, which we're definitely going to get into uh, a lot in this episode. But just tell us a little bit about yourself, creative writing teacher. I mean, I... I am envious that as a as a new kind of newish writer myself, I'm envious of both you and your students because it sounds so wonderful. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so I've been doing it for about twenty years. Um, I now I got my degree in creative writing when I was um, you know twenty four or so, and um, I thought that I was like poised to like have this life in publishing and writing for the rest of my life. And um, it was actually on my graduation day from my MFA program in creative writing that my mother passed away. I had gone to get my diploma, you know, from the administration office. I didn't walk in the ceremony, 
but I went to go show her because she had um, actually moved to my college town with me um, when I went down there to Florida for my program. Um, and I was so happy to show her and I walked in and I, you know, I found her there. Mm-hmm. And what followed was about 10 years of not writing at all. Um, because every time I tried to go to the page, no matter what I intended to write, even if it was just some sort of like fluffy, happy piece, it always would de- like detour into a story about mother loss. And I didn't feel ready to face it. And so I stayed away from that kind of really emotional writing for a while um, and focused instead on teaching. You know, And teaching, you know, it... Um, has always been like a love of mine, but um, it makes me very open. It makes me feel very vulnerable when I'm mm-hmm. giving of myself. And even in the teaching, I would find like, you know, ideas of what I really need to be writing about pulling me back. And so I would, you know, talk a lot about grief writing. And I would talk a lot about how do we begin grief stories and sustain grief stories and end grief stories when we are still um, you know, dealing with those feelings, you know, right now, how do you provide closure when you don't feel closure, right? Right. Um, well, it's, so- I, I'm sure it's kind of, oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. I was going to say, I'm sure it's like jumping into a story in the middle, right? Like, because yeah. like grief is like not, uh, you know, kind of doesn't have a beginning and an end. It doesn't have this linear process either. I would imagine writing about it kind of sometimes feels like jumping into a movie or opening a book to the middle chapter. Exactly. That's a beautiful way to say that. Um, and so, you know, when I came back to teaching, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on grief writing for a while. And so in November of 2020, um, like right during the the height of the pandemic, I started offering these grief writing classes every Sunday. I've never missed a Sunday in seven weeks. Um, and it's just grown and grown and I've really found my home in especially teaching grief writing. I teach a lot of different kinds of classes too, but especially Mm. about grief. Yeah. You know, it's, I was struck when you were kind of beginning the story of how you came to be doing the work you're doing, um, about the very bitter irony of your mom passing away on your graduation day. And I'm wondering if it felt like this to you that sometimes I think when these terrible tragedies happen on monumental days, like whether it be like a graduation day, a wedding day, like, did you feel betrayed by the thing that you loved by writing? Like, and I'm wondering, like, maybe not directly, like, hey, you betrayed me creative writing, but you're getting, you're at this like milestone of receiving, you know, like a degree in this thing you're passionate about. And this awful tragedy happens on the same day. Was it like, did you feel in some way emotionally betrayed by your passion? Oh, that's such a great question. I feel like um, writing suddenly took on a whole other meaning. When I was in my program, um, I was just about the only woman student in my program, and I had all male teachers, right? And so for I came into the program one kind of writer, um, telling like stories about friendship and family and like domestic life. And I left on that graduation day feeling like a very different writer who had been playing to this room of men for a long time. And so I would edit out a lot of sentimentality. Mm. Like I started writing with a little bit more like sarcasm and cynicism and things that were not of me because I felt like um, I wasn't going to get good feedback if I wasn't writing, you know, in the way that they were writing. Mm, And um, thank goodness I didn't start publishing 
you know, then. Um, I think that I realized on that, you know, very soon after that event, that if I was ever going to be a writer again, that I was going to have to like embrace all the stuff that was true, true, true of me, you know, and find my own voice again to honor my mother with, you know, what I had been through like, and, and with the kind of voice that I knew would be able to tell, you know, broaching sentimentality, like allowing for tears to come in and to risk someone saying, oh, that's just fluff, right? Um, I needed to be able to like find my voice again. And so it took me that long, probably a decade, to find my way back to who I really was meant to be as a writer. And now when I'm writing, I feel like I've really embraced what was always good about my talent. I guess you're talking about authenticity, right? You know, getting to the core of your authentic self. And in there, it sounds like there was just so much pain and so much grief. And it was so scary to approach that. But when you are working with students, isn't part of it about reaching your authentic self? Or do sometimes people write from a parts of themselves that aren't really deep down who they are? Can you tell the difference? Like, Yeah, I think I can. I think we all can. You know, even if it's like um, a random detail that's thrown in, sometimes a detail can shimmer with reality. And we're like, we know that you did not make that up. Mm -hmm. Like that was something, like even if you're writing fiction, right? Like we can tell like the detail that is like full of life. And we're like, oh, that really came from something that you experienced. Um, And I feel like the class that I teach on Sundays, I just seem to attract people who um, really want to create an environment that is warm and allows for authenticity and celebrates it, right? So we're all on Zoom, like we're all doing Zoom these days still. Um, But when people read, you know, their authentic writing, the chat box just lights up. It just fills to bursting with people affirming what they're hearing, what they're resonating with, what they, you know, they know to be true. And it's, quite um, exciting for people. They want to keep reading. They want to keep offering of themselves because they recognize that here is a group of people who are ready to listen, who can really take it in. Right. I mean, it's such a tether, right? I think that writing is such a tether for people to be, because I think we all spend so much time in our own personal experiences and in our brains and seeing the world through our eyes and art in general, of course, and like film and music and these things that like really wrap us in and that we like love and like connect to. Like, I think it's at the core about a tether to humanity. You know what I mean? Like, oh my God, someone else felt this feeling and like they said it in this way that I, it was like I was seeing it, you know what I mean? Or I got to see it with some fresh eyes and that feels like it can give people the strength to continue to be people, to live in this world that is so often like asking us otherwise, you know what I mean? Like, and and informing us we shouldn't. And I think that that at its core is the real power of, of good writing and bad writing of just writing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like really like what's good anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Like recently I've been spending a lot of time with my students talking about absurd settings, like, Mm. Um, not so much like um, like science fiction or fantasy, but it's something like a world where like one thing is off, 
you know, like mm. where everyone understands and it's easy to go in and erase your memory or just like one little thing where the um, characters in the story have just kind of accepted this new reality. Mm. Um, and I talk to them a lot about how um, even in the midst of an absurd story, an absurd setting, you know, it's really the, the human interactions, the conversations that are happening in the midst of that strangeness that makes the real story. You know, mm. they can be anywhere. They can be on the planet Mars, you know, yeah. and it's really going to be like the fears and the hopes and the grief that people are experiencing and sharing um, that reminds us of our humanity. Um, it's just those settings can just throw it into a starker relief. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, we started off chatting a bit, Diane, about your your mom, and I'm so you know, curious and hoping that you can share with us and our listeners, um, as you, you know, briefly mentioned to us in our pre-interview about your relationship with your mom and you're growing up and, you know, you had mentioned to us that your dad passed that when you were very young and it was really about you and your mom. And what was that growing up experience like for you? What was your guys' relationship like before her passing? Yeah. So, um, my beloved dad, he passed when I was 15 and, um, we were really each other's only family after that. You know, I had extended family, but I didn't know them. Um, and my mother didn't really have a very strong network of friendships, you know, and so we became very like devoted and loyal to one another. Um, and then, as I mentioned, when I went to grad school, she moved to that college town with me to be close to me. And we saw each other like every day, you know, and, um, I remember telling my husband that, and he was like, I don't think that's usual. I don't think a lot of people see their moms every day. And I was like, yeah, I just really love to be around her. And I remember there was like a, a Perkins restaurant. I don't know if you have a Perkins up where mm -hmm. you are. Um, it's like a little diner style restaurant. And um, they would have this like glass case filled with these beautiful pies. And she would um, call me on the phone and say, why don't you go and stop and get a pie and come by? And we would do it like every week, you know. And so recently I went down to Florida um, just a couple of weeks ago and I wanted to show my daughter who is almost 10, um, you know, where my mom used to live and where the Perkins was. Mm -hmm. And it was all sort of like really broken down now. You know, it wasn't the same. Uh, but I just, I remembered like driving that route like to her apartment with like the, the moss coming off of the oak trees. So just, it was such a beautiful drive. And I remember, you know, parking in the same spot all the time, going into that apartment and being with her. She, um, she really delighted in being with me and I loved being with her. Mm. Mm, that is so, so sweet. I just, you know, people say, oh, it's not usual to see your mom every day. That oh, Yeah, for me, it was, it was wonderful. That's beautiful. I, I mean, I, I can relate because Bobby and I talk multiple times a day and people say the same thing. Like, that's very strange. You and your mom talk like <laughs> three times a day. But you know what? Like, this is our one life and you should spend it how you want. And if you want to see or talk to your parent or friend or whatever, you know, and we, you have a healthy relationship in that way. Like, it, that's beautiful. And I, I'm so sorry that, you know, you lost her. And what was it's, your mom's it's name? Terribly painful. What was her name? Oh, thank you for asking. Her name was Joan. Joan. Hmm. Joan. Yeah. And that's really interesting that you asked that because that was one of the most powerful moments in the grief writing class that I lead. 
you know, we had been sharing these stories with each other about people that we had lost week after week. And then somewhere like halfway through this um, journey together, I just said, you know, I don't think I know any of these people's names. Mm. And it's how we don't often talk about our loved ones who have passed on using their names, would they like my mother, my mm-hmm. husband, um, almost like to say their name would be to usher them into the room or something and make other people uncomfortable. But we went around and everyone just spoke the name of their loved one out loud. And it was such a powerful moment. I'll never forget yeah. it. In bereavement groups, we often also include a picture. And it's not the first time. It's not even the second time. It's usually maybe the third time. But there's something about also seeing the picture of who that person, that beloved, I like to call it the beloved, who the beloved yeah. is. And that's so special. Tell us more about Joan. Oh, um, well, she was an incredible cook. <laughs> she was a really good cook. Um, you know, she made the most wonderful um, pastas and sauces and um, you know, she could cook, you know, just a, a wide variety of things. And I... I remember coming home like from like work late at night and she'd have some kind of dish on the stove heating up for me. Um, she was a very um, wonderful like sewer and knitter. She, her hands were always busy and she was um, incredibly supportive. So she was a, a very supportive person. And when my father got sick, she had never worked outside the home, but um, you know she had to start working because he lost his job and his ability to work. And so she was like working 24 hours a day. She would work oh overnight, sleep for an hour and then go back out again. Um, she really just would, knew how to dig deep and do for people who, um, when, it was, when it was needed. Beautiful, so your dad had an illness. Did he have a long-term illness? Is, is that part of what happened? Yeah, yeah, he had, um, a polycystic kidney disease, which is a genetic illness, and um, I have that too. Um, mm. I found out right around the time that he passed away that I too have that, and they have That's like right. a 50% chance of passing it down to the next generation, so I don't know if my daughter has it yet, um, but his was a long illness, like with like years of dialysis, mm. and just sort of watching the decline, um, and you know, lots of time to say goodbye. Yeah. yeah, it would also explain why your life was narrow at that time, you know, because when there's chronic illness in the family, it's hard to have an open home with people coming in and out and friends invite your friend. It becomes just narrower and narrower. So it sounds like yeah. that's what you described. Yeah. yeah, it really does. I um I remember when I was in I was in high school and this happened, and um you know I was encouraged to go see a, a counselor in school about. Um, having lost my dad, and he, um, this guy was, you know, a young guy, and he was working on his thesis. Um, he was, you know, taking some program, and he said, I have this idea that, you know, if we can gather some other people, other kids like you, and you could talk to each other and give each other advice, it might help you in your grief, and even at that time, I felt like, I, I don't know if this is something I want to do, um, but I thought, well, maybe I'll find like one person in the school who would understand because my, mm. like you're saying, Bobby, like my world is really narrow, right? Maybe I'll find one person. Um, so I went back the next week, like for the, the big group meeting and there was nobody there. And he said, oh. um, I said, well, 
did, did you find anybody like me? And he's like, no, I tried. Oh, <laughs> it and it was so funny. funny when I say it out loud now, but I think that really was like the first time I took that into myself as truth. Mm. There is no one else like me. Yeah. Oh. And I, I lived that for a long time. And even today, I feel like it has this lasting effect of um, like no one else can quite understand what I'm feeling. And so I have to do for myself. I have to keep it inside, right. coil it up really tight. I don't want to impose this on other people. Um, the grief writing group is helping me too. It's the antidote. The grief writing group yeah. is the antidote to your negative grief. And writing belief. in general. Yeah. And writing in general. I mean, of course, community and groups is so is really just mm-hmm. deeply important. But even just like back to what we were saying before, just like writing in general and like all these ways in which people create and act in vulnerability of like, you know, making music, making art, writing, like just to those little like reminders that like you aren't, you know, fully alone in that. But, and, and I mean, uh, that is obviously the ultimate goal of like this show. And in talking about grief in general is that like, and we, I've say this often, but like one of the worst parts of like losing someone and and being in grief is that feeling of being like all of a sudden oh now I'm part of like this club I'm part of a club of people who like lost their parent I'm a club of of widows and like and not that but the the connotation that being part of that club is bad you know what I mean or there needs to be like it's just so it just happens to literally everyone and I mean literally in the Webster's way not literally and like how we use it now it literally happens to everyone we all have trauma we all have loss like and it is so unfair that when that happens you know that people especially children I mean to think of you as a 15 year old in high school like you know feeling like there was no one else in your whole school but you know the thing that's not true there exactly. were other people That's in your That's why high it school. was so lousy that nobody showed up for the group. I mean, that was really, it probably wasn't even true. There probably were kids, but what a message to get. But that's a time when you're in high school, talk about like not wanting to feel othered right, exactly. or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's terrible how we like as a society shame ourselves for these natural things that are part of life, whatever they may be. All of the most human things are made, we are made societally mm-hmm. to feel shame about you know what I mean like I don't know hopefully I I have hope because I see like the next generation of young people really like pushing back against that in every way you know in every possible way and that's really encouraging but man like even I mean I grew up in the 90s I I mean I'm you know we all grew up I think maybe a few decades apart from each other but like wow like none of us were (laughs) really held in that way I don't think and it's yeah. hard. It's hard that that had to exist in that way. Um, so Diane, you were saying that your mom was a great cook and she made great pastas and sauces. And mm-hmm. is there any one thing in particular that she made that really stands out? That was like a favorite of yours? Yes. And it's so simple. So simple. Um, but around Thanksgiving, well, on Thanksgiving Day every year, she would make um, this platter of celery sticks with cream cheese and green manzanilla olives and paprika oh. sprinkled on top. And I don't know how common that is, um, but it was very common in my family. And so um, you know, she would arrange it on this big glass dish 
um, she, look at all these little celery stalks kind of coming out in a sunburst pattern. Oh, and in the middle, there would be like other kinds of crudite and things like that. Um, but it was so simple that it was something that she was able to teach me how to make really early on. And I felt like I had a role in the kitchen of filling each little spear of celery with cream cheese and <laughs> olives and sprinkling on the paprika. And, you know, I've gone on to teach that to my daughter, um, how to make it. And so that's her job in the kitchen now. Um, but I remember, you know, I would make it sometimes you know, in the years following, and sometimes not on Thanksgiving, sometimes I'd make it just when I was wanting to mem remember her and be feel close to her. And my husband noticed. And one night, um, it was like the anniversary of her passing. I came home late from work, and he was sitting there with a platter oh. of celery with cream cheese and olives. And oh. I just felt so, you know, like he had noticed, like that had meant something to me, something so simple, you know. It's really um, sweet. Yeah. As you describe the platter, um, it makes me think about writing as you tell the story because it's like it's like time traveling. And I think you spoke a little bit about that in your pre-interview. You know, when we ask people questions about foods and we can almost feel them travel back, you know, through the yes. through time, back to that moment. That's such a sweet um representation of what we're talking about. You know, just we can all picture it in the sunburst. But it's yeah. like I think that with grief, there is so many memories and sometimes we want to go there and sometimes we don't, but it really, I call it time traveling and we go back and we go forth and we go, what do you think about that? How do you see that? I think that's really interesting that you say time travel because in my grief writing Sundays, what I have found to be really helpful are prompts. They're writing prompts, but I call them portals mm. because I feel like I'm delivering people to a moment in time and then they can, you know, write into that moment or keep moving past it. Um, but we often talk about being transported to a moment and then, you know, writing from that place. So I, I think that's very apt, Bobby. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that when you were writing your book, um, that and also can you just please tell us a little about the book? I mean, this is kind of a good segue into that, but that when you were writing the book, um, that you were working with an editor at first who maybe didn't understand your kind of non-linear way of approaching the story. Um, so yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, the novel is called The All Night Sun and it came out from Random House in 2020. And, you know, it took me a long time to write this book, um, you know, a long time to get to the place where I could write and then a long time to write it. Um, but I found my way into it um, using something called autofiction, where mm. you are using fiction as sort of um, the container for yourself, but you are offering a lot of personal details and reality from your life um, in that container. And it feels a bit safer to move into it. Mm. Um, but one of the things that I found really helpful for me as I was writing was going back and forth in time, which felt to me the way that my grief moved. You know, mm. didn't follow like a progression, like that we may be told, like there are these different steps to grief, but like there's moving on and then moving back. Um, you're walking down the street and you see something and you are time traveled into a memory, right? Um, suddenly you're in that emotion again. And those movements became really critical to the book. I wanted to explore that um, in between time of like moving between 
you know, reality and the past. So um, I sold the book and the editor who acquired it loved it, but she soon took a job at another publishing house and my book's contract remained with the original publisher. So I was assigned a new editor and this is so funny. I met her at a diner in Virginia near where I am. And I was so excited that I was finally going to be able to continue work on the book with this new editor. And um, we sat down and I ordered um, waffles with caramel sauce and like ice cream and whipped cream. I was like, yum. Great. I was so happy. And she ordered black coffee and dry toast. And I knew like, <laughs> right like a combo. <laughs> something is not no right here. Um, We're not on the same page. Yeah. So I, you know, she said, I really love the book, but have you thought about putting it in a linear format? Just saying first this happened, then this <sighs> happened. And I was so scared. Oh. I was like, I'm going to lose this book. I've got to try. I have to show I'm a good author. Right. And so I agreed to do it. And I pulled it all apart and I Frankensteined it back together into this different format. And I knew it had lost sort of what made it magical. Mm. But I thought that I would deliver it and say, I gave it a try. Let's go back to the other way it was. Yeah. She canceled the book. She canceled it outright and wow. said, um, it just it still isn't working for me. And it was devastating to oh. me. It was like my heart on the page. It was so much of myself in that story. Um. So there was a long period of time where I was just um, having difficulty even opening my document and looking at it again. But eventually um, we did resell the book to an editor who got it, mm. who understood that kind of movement of grief. And if there's anything that I have heard from readers since the book has come out is that the format, the back and forth is what feels so mm. important to them mm -hmm. so I'm so grateful you know that it worked out the way that it did you know I just needed to find someone who could champion that understanding this of is course. a good juncture to um to tell the listeners that um I had an opportunity to look at some parts of the book through through your website and I am just astounded at your description of grief there are so many beautiful poetic deep descriptions of grief one thing you said was sadness is long it's always long, a long string from a big ball that you roll and roll. Mm. And it made me think what Zara was saying before about losses throughout our life. You know, um, I always love, uh, we, Zara and I talk about Judith Vorst's book, Unnecessary Losses. Necessary mm -hmm. losses, not unnecessary losses, <laughs> but how there's loss all through life. There's always loss. And yes. it takes so many different forms. It doesn't, it's not just the death of a loved one. It's all the transitions and changes that we have in life. Um, if I could read one more quote that I just love so much, he said, grief is not a dark cloud that hangs there, but a blazing thing that makes you face what you've been avoiding and scorches you into wakefulness. Mm. So powerful. And, you know, that so fits what we know about grief is that, you know, pain is both... Um, an emergency and a crisis and an opportunity. You know? Yeah. And so, and what you're saying is, is that, um, what did you mean by wakefulness? Tell us more what you mean by how grief became a wakefulness yeah. for you. I feel like, um, you know, I lost my dad at 15 
and then, you know, life goes on in its way and you get caught up in, you know, at that time, you know, teenage things and then college things. And you, it's possible to forget like the, um, that place of grief where it's almost like a room in itself where it feels like you are shut off from others. Um, and I feel like, you know, when I lost my mother, I was delivered back to that room. I had known it before. I knew that sense of being again. It was almost like that was wakefulness and the day-to-day -day moving on with things was a certain kind of sleep, you know? And you can feel it when someone else is awake in their grief in the same way that you are. Mm -hmm. mm. Absolutely. And I always say that grief is about the constant reminders of reality. And when they hit you, it goes so deep into your core, but that's actually where the healing is, is in the acceptance of the reality. So it's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I have a friend named um, Jess DeCourcy Hines, another like incredible writer. And um, she had been telling me about um, the surgery she had on her hand and how um, she had a scar there after the surgery. And her doctor would tell her that she has to like massage it a little bit every day. And she said that that's what writing about grief is like. Mm. You know, the scar may not go away totally, right? Um, it may never be the same. But over time, if you're intentional and you return to the page, it's like massaging that area. And then you might have a little bit more movement. Mm. You know, that healing can begin, you know, because of that intentionality. Good metaphor. Yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. Um, Diane, you also, you know, we're talking about before the show a little bit about what, um, you know, your relationship with food has been like after your mom passed. First of all, I, I didn't ask if you are a cook and aside from the celery is, uh, which I mean, what a lovely, delicious snack also. So up my alley, I'm going to go make that right after we get off the interview. Um, but, uh, a, I guess, are you a cook? And what has your relationship with food been like? Because a lot of the time I know that people, especially when the parent or the loved one they lost, you know, when food was important or a big part of it, it's interesting that kind of turns and where that where that goes for the, you know, the griever afterwards. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, like on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't cook as much as say my mother did for us as a family. Um, I do a lot of takeout in my house, you know, do a lot of like heating up of things. Um, but there are certain things that I, you know, feel like I need to make on certain days, you know, um, and they are always recipes that were passed down to me by my mom, you know, that I know by heart now. Um, she, you know, was not a vegetarian the way I am, you know, and my husband is vegan. And so we have to adapt some of those recipes a little bit. Um, but it's very important to me that they you know, show up on the table. And mm -hmm. over the years, those have become my daughter's favorite things too. So um, she knows how to make a lot of these dishes, like um, a stuffing with, you know, um, in my case, like a veggie sausage and onions and apples, celery, um, sweet potatoes with apples and maple syrup, just like the sweetest, most mm. delicious stuff. Um, so lots of recipes that, you know, I have taken and maybe had to adapt, but they still hold the essence of her. 
Beautiful. I love that. And in terms of like your kind of relationship to food after her passing, what is that like for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's a little difficult to talk about, but um, I have kind of come to terms with the idea that, you know, I do have some disordered eating um, and I, I can kind of trace it back to my grief event. Now, um, in the days after my mother's passing, it was chaos. You know, I was on my own. Mm. I remember um, I had, you know, not only any, no other family to turn to, but it was my graduation day, right? So all of mm. my friends from school were moving back home to their hometowns, you know, and so I really had no support system around me. I remember I had a little index card where I had like every next step of things I had to do, whether it was going to figure out how to get funds out of probate, you know, just like all of the legal stuff, like finding how to pay for things like a cremation. Um, it was just very, very um, stressful during that time. And so I would keep this index card with me and over time it became just so worn down as I would like erase things I had done and add new things to it. Um, and so I was, finding myself like going and getting like the same meals through the drive-through, you know, getting lots of fast food. And to this day, that holds some measure of comfort for me mm. in a moment where I'm feeling chaotic. Mm. That's what I will go for. And it's not sort of like, oh, just because I'm running out of time. It's really like almost a, a ritual in itself. Mm. And so I've really had to come to terms with this is coming from that time in my life. And if I need to get body healthy, I also have to get, um, I have to keep working on my grief. You know, I need yeah. to keep making space for storytelling and facing it and being with it like a friend. I, I believe that we can be with our grief like mm -hmm. a friend. Our grief has so much to show us and help us remember, right? Yeah. Um, but I need to make space for that intentionally so that I'm not just going to the feeling mm -hmm. that I had back then. And the numbing of yeah. the feeling. Yes. Right. And so you're, you, you, that's an opportunity. It's like a wake-up call to face it, you know, mm -hmm. the, the awareness. And sometimes we don't. And sometimes we do need to numb ourselves as we're always reminded, right? It's not always, somebody once said, you can't stare at the sun continuously. You have to look away sometimes. Yes. Which brings us to a commonality we had when you uh, wrote your pre-interview, you talked about that you liked our concept of the turtle. I do love so, your concept <laughs> Tell us more what you mean. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, you call it the turtle. And um, I use a technique with my students called the hermit crab. Um, essay or hermit crab kind of prompt and that term was coined by a writer named Brenda Miller in her book called Tell It Slant which has become sort of a beloved text for writers of nonfiction. Mm. Um, and what she describes is that we can find a container a protective container to wear for ourselves um, as we are doing this very vulnerable writing um, and wear it like a shell, the way that these little creatures like borrow these homes and wear them for a time and shed them. Um, and so, you know, for hermit crab writing, what that might mean is taking a very neutral um, form 
of writing, neutral, and then putting an emotional story in it. So for example, if we're talking about the container or the form of directions on the side of a shampoo bottle, mm-hmm. we probably all know there's three steps, <laughs> lather, rinse, repeat, and it's mm-hmm. not very emotional, <laughs> but it's familiar. Right. And so, you know, what if we told a story using those steps, but filling it in with more um, truth, right? Mm. So we could tell the story of maybe growing up in an abusive family using those directions. Step one, lather. When you hear him coming through the door with the clink of his beer bottles, run to your room, shut the door and sit in your egg-shaped chair and spin it toward the window. Right. Step two, rinse. Put on your headphones. Let the music wash over you and drown out the sounds of the yelling downstairs. Step three, repeat, right? And now the form itself, the container is offering up metaphors that we may not have considered before, right? But when I tell people, we're going to write a story. You no, know, it sounds like the directions on the side of a shampoo bottle. Yeah, you know, right. they can do that. If I say, okay, sit down and tell me the story of your abusive exactly. family. No, <laughs> like the walls right, go shut down up. right away. Right. Totally. Right. A way of sort of entering in sideways, exactly. approaching its land. And so for a little while, we're just describing the setting. We're just describing like this neutral thing. And then maybe some words will peek out. And, you know, more vulnerability, more truth comes forward. Right. Well, I mean, that's really how we try to, you know, the reason we kind of started this podcast in this way of like talking about food and grief. I mean, we're really talking about grief mostly, but um, being able to disarm both the listener and the guest with talking about food, which is a much more approachable kind of thing to talk about and finding ways where you can kind of get in with that, Um, you know, it is important really as a writer, if you really want to grasp onto like those things to find that way, even if you're writing, you know, with humor, like I, I love David Sedaris, right. He's mm-hmm. like, I love his, his short stories and his essays. He's amazing. And I have a friend, a good friend of mine who really like loves to write and writes a lot of kind of, you know, humor and kind of self-deprecating stuff. But while I really have enjoyed his writing and sometimes I like edit his stuff, I'm like, you know, there's something there that's missing and it's not the quality of the writing, it's the mm-hmm. vulnerability, right? So if you read like a David Sedaris short story or essay, it is it is also very vulnerable. And it's in that same kind of thing, like in that same package where you think you're just getting a funny story, you walk away knowing a lot about him, you know, and about his family. And it's like so it's so deep. And so, you know, I asked this friend of mine one day, I'm like, just as a thought, write about this thing that's actually acutely very painful in your life without making any jokes about it at all, you know? And he did, and it was the best piece of writing he's ever written. And I was like, okay, now maybe try to mesh these two together and and you've got a stew going, (laughs) you know? But I just think it's interesting. That vulnerability is really crucial in whatever kind of writing you're doing, I think. Yes. And, you know, writing about food is so sensory. Mm. It is incredibly sensory and comforting and evocative. Um, You know, the most successful hermit crab prompt or portal I've ever given is using a recipe. Mm. 
story, um, you know, where you just begin by listing out the ingredients. Like we know what a recipe looks like, right? And then there's steps, one, two, three, four, right? And so, um, you know, the people know like these recipes by heart, they can immediately think of something that feels emotionally like linked for them. And so they can begin, they don't have to like sit there and worry how much am I going to reveal of myself? You know, how can I go there today? I don't know. They just start writing the list. And the starting is always the hardest thing. You know, but the, the recipe portal is so powerful. And I would encourage all of your listeners, mm. if they haven't tried this before, you know, just to start with a recipe that um, they know by heart, even if it's like how to heat up a Stouffer's meal in the microwave, you know, yeah. so two steps there, how to make spaghetti, <laughs> you know, first you boil the water, but yeah. you, know, you put like the first little part of the recipe, first step, and then you just kind of continue from there, you know, um, it. and, you know, you write as long as you can after that, thinking about what does this bring up for me? And then when you can't go on or if you run out of ideas, you just go back to step number two for making the recipe. And maybe there's a word in there or something that again will like bring back a memory, you know, and you can write a little bit about that. And like a scaffold, it'll hold you. The container, it'll hold you. If you can't go on, go to the next step. You know, it's just a a beautiful portal. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with Sarah said, you're lucky students. I mean, really fortunate are we to hear your words of wisdom that I really think can affect so many people and help so many people. It's really so nice to hear you. Um, I just wanted to add one more thing, if I could. It was about your book. And again, the name of the book is The The All Night Sun. And I think I read, I was reading one of your reviews, not a review, an interview. And I think you were saying that it felt like a healing of your childhood because you were able to kind of go back into your life and heal aspects of your life through the book. Did I gather that right? Is that what I heard? I I think so. I mean, probably more accurately, I would say that it healed, you know, what happened in that room with that psychologist a mm-hmm. long time ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. He said, no, there was no one like you, right? Because when the book was published, here came a lot of people like oh. me reaching mm. out to me and saying, I'm here too. I know what you mean. And it healed that. I don't know if we can ever expect to be fully healed from our grief, but we can, you know, uh, you know approach it a little bit each day and be at home with it, be friends with it mm-hmm. and take a joy from the memories, right? Um, in that way, I think um, it healed for me. Mm. Beautiful. Um, so at the end of every episode, and I can't believe that we're nearing the end because this was such a beautiful conversation. We could talk to you all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, we ask everybody the same question and the different answers are so incredible because honestly, I don't think any two people, any two guests have ever answered this question the same way, which is pretty cool. Um, if you could have said something to yourself, given your younger self, some piece of advice at the beginning of this grief process, which for you, obviously there's you know, some big moments of grief um, and, you know, with your father and your mother. So wherever you picture yourself in that moment, uh, knowing what you know now and having gone through it and all the kind of ups and downs and turns of living with grief, what would that bit of advice be to your younger self? 
I think it would be, um, you're not going to be alone for long. I, you know, I think, you know, I, I recently, I told you I returned to my um, mother's old apartment where, you know, I, I had found her that evening and <laughs> they recently turned it into an Airbnb. So I guess I could go back in and like relive my experience. <laughs> if I <wanted>. Yeah. <laughs> so bizarre, so strange. Mm. Um, but I, you know, that moment to the time that I found like my husband and then had my baby, like it was, it was a very short period of time really over the course of my life. Mm. And it felt like decades, like it felt so long. Mm. And I did close myself down in a way that I almost felt like I was creating my future, that I was going to be alone and I was going to make sure I was going to be alone, mm. you know, for the rest of my life. But it was actually a very short period of time in reality. Mm. And um, if I could have just told myself then, you were going to be loved again. You were going to mm. be, you know, around people who love being with you again. I think that would have helped a lot. That's really very sweet and very lovely, very loving advice. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. So we also like to know from our guests, if we were all able to have a meal together right now, which would be so wonderful. Um, what would we all, what would we all bring? I was going to be like a potluck. Well, I'm going to bring yes. my celery sticks. Okay. Amazing. I was we hoping can't you wait. We were hoping. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make them so pretty. <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't wait. Like That's amazing. For you. That sounds That's beautiful. Awesome. I know uh, what, what I'm going to make. Well, Last week, um, you came to the house and we, you taught me how to make pastry crust, like really wonderful, that your friend had taught you how to make. And it was a wonderful pastry crust, layered, layered upon layer of flaky, amazing crust. Mm. And we all as a family um, made it and we made a chicken pot pie. But this time, because you're vegetarian, I would like to make a French provincial quiche. So we'll take some really good pastry dough and then we'll take, you know, zucchini and eggplant and tomatoes and mushrooms and garlic and um, gruyere and that's what we'll do. That sounds delicious. Yum, thank you. (laughs) I I am going to bring, inspired by uh, your waffle story, which made me hungry for waffles and to, to kind of, you know, to embrace that rather than be the black coffee and dry toast (laughs) folks i would make an epic waffle sundae for dessert so some homemade delicious like overnight uh sourdough waffles some homemade delicious vanilla ice cream a salty caramel sauce we'll recreate that waffle (laughs) breakfast but all enjoy it and be all be together eat it with gusto right (laughs) exactly yeah Yeah. i love it that sounds good yeah (laughs) Dan, this was such a beautiful episode and thank you so much because, you know, no matter how many times you tell the story and you've written a beautiful book about it and given other interviews about it, but, um, you know, it is always such a generous, generous thing to to speak, especially with strangers and to share your truth um, about some of the most painful things that have happened in your life. And I, I know that it means so much to our listeners. And so on behalf of us and them both, thank you so much for sharing today and coming on the show. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Bobby. And thank you for everything that you do for your listeners. Um, it's a beautiful space. Thank you. Oh, thank you and so how much. can people find you and, and how could they find you? Yeah. Um, I yes, hope what's your address? 
dianesena.com. And um, there they can find out about Grief Writing Sundays and possibly just come in and drop in, try it out for free and see if it feels like the warm, welcoming space that they need. Amazing. We're going to link to that in our show notes. So we'll put your, your website in the link in the show notes. All right. Well, Diane, thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. And folks, uh, we will talk to you soon. Take care of yourselves and each other. Bye. Bye. HRN is excited to announce that we've launched our channel on Kitsch, the new food-centric live streaming video platform for interviews, cooking classes, and more. In April, in collaboration with Kitsch and the Mushroom Council, we're celebrating Earth Month with delicious, nutritious, and sustainable mushroom recipes. Check out the latest videos on our channel to see Eat Your Heartland Out host Capri Cafaro, Jupiter's Almanac host Matthew Rayford, and Item 13 host Yoramaku Aku moderate recipe demos with chefs Jeremy Fox and Ali Rosen. Join us at K-I-T-T-C-H dot com to become part of the first live streaming community for the food obsessed. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.